Hey everyone, you're listening to The Talent Revolution, where we believe that focusing on quality over volume and being different, not better, is the right way to hire the best humans and build stronger teams. To help you do this, I go behind the scenes with forward-thinking recruiters, employer brand experts, and people leaders making a huge difference to their organization. I'm your host, Tom Hackwell, and in today's episode, I'll be speaking with Markelos Diorinos, co-founder and CEO of Brick. Markelos initially trained as a computer scientist because he loved computers and coding, and then spent a decade as a moderately successful developer. Despite his programming chops, he couldn't ever motivate himself to deal with the mundane day-to-day tasks, but eventually he found himself running teams and organizations, something that he actually really loves. With his own experience in mind, he set out to create the future of work by starting Brick, a talent-intelligent platform designed to support HR decisions based on objective data. I've personally worked with Brick and Mark Ellis in the past, and he's not only got a fantastic business, but a super astute perspective on the broader market. We're super lucky to have him with us today, and I'm excited to dig in. Mark Ellis, thanks for coming. Tom, thank you so much for having me, and you did such a great job with my name. Thank you very much. But look, as I say, really excited to have you here. I think everybody by the end of the podcast is going to understand why. I want to start by just digging into your background. We, we, we want to set the scene on sort of how you got into this space in the first place, what your career trajectory has been like, and sort of why your voice is really one that people should be listening to. So can you give me a sense of what your career journey has been like to date? It's been multifaceted, and that's part of the thing I love. Like many people, I've had a hard time um, finding my calling in life. So I started by studying computer science because I love computers. I'm, I'm kind of nerdish, if you can tell. And my actual master's was in virtual reality. And that was in, uh, in year... Okay, I'm not going to disclose the year. That was a long time ago. I'll tell you this much. I was using at the time for my, for my master's thesis, I was using a 100,000 euro computer. And we didn't even have euros at the time. So it was in Deutschmark because I was in Germany. And that thing had like 64 megabytes of video RAM. <laughs> if you tell now, you know, you buy a graphics card for 50 quid, and it's got like a gigabyte of memory. This is how far back this was. Anyways, so I, I did that, and it was fun. And then I said, uh, cool, I like computers. Let me become a programmer. And I, I loved coding. I feel it's, a, you know, it's an art form, and I was an artist. But being an artist doesn't make you a great professional. And then I struggled for, I don't know, almost a decade trying to do things here and there, and I was never really happy. I was never content with writing code. It always felt like, nah. So that's when I started shifting gears and I tried different things. So I said, okay, if I'm this, let me go into marketing. And the reason why I went to marketing is that I was in pre-sales at Microsoft at the time. And then I saw the marketing people and how little they understood about technology. So I said, man, I can do this better. So I started going that way. And they did marketing for a while and then sales and then managing teams. And all those different things. And at the end of the day, you find your calling in, in ways that are unexpected. It shouldn't be that hard. I ended up running teams and I ended up working with people. And that's all great. I realized that I get a lot of pleasure by helping others becoming successful. And this is what, what it's all about, running teams and becoming a manager. It should have been easier, though. Yeah, I can imagine. And I think, you know, having obviously, I've known you for a while and, and looked to your bio and, and recap myself on some of these things. I think there's such a hugely diverse range, right? Like lots of people talk about having a lot of experience or a bit of a diverse experience, but yours literally runs the gamut from big code to small code, from industry to industry, from location to location. And there's so much sort of packed in there. I guess, like, how does all of that in your mind lead you to starting a, a HR tech business? Is it just that desire to help people or is there something more behind that? 
Have you ever watched that uh, movie, The Slam Dog Millionaire? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. You know how yeah. his whole thing was little events that were coming up to prepare him for that one day? I kind of feel like my life was like that. And if you ever think about it, if you put it in words and say, hey, how did you make the transition from studying computer science and getting a master's in virtual reality from VR to HR? How does that even make sense? And uh, it wasn't one thing. So it was my personal quest for a career. It was working for organizations that grew, and I was very happy to make great hires. I was very unhappy when I was selecting the wrong people. And then I can remember my kicking myself and saying, I hired this person. They didn't work out. I'm looking back at the whole experience. I couldn't have done better. I didn't have any signs that said that this person would fail. Why did that happen to me? And another experience that really shaped me was having to hire internationally. You know how it's all great if you're, I don't know, if you're in the U.S. and you hire U.S. people, it's all fine. But if you start hiring Brazilians, excellent people, completely different culture, all the little tells that you're used to looking at for telling who's who and what they're doing, they just go away. And then you try to hire people from Vietnam. Actually, very, very clever people. Culturally, I can understand Brazilians. I still have a lot of trouble with Vietnamese people. So you go through all these things. And I think the, the one experience that really shaped this is that when with my co-founder, Guy, that must have been back in 2012. We were then uh, hiring for the first time for, um, for a spin-off from our then company. And we were hiring for a new role. Uh, that company was doing marketing optimization. So they were trying to hire this hybrid. These were people who would uh, do marketing optimization. So they were supposed to come up and write subject lines, which is fine. But then they were also supposed to do this in a structured way and use a proper grammar not in much in the, you know, in the computer science form of a grammar, and do an experiment and get the results and tally the statistics. And when we started hiring for these people, we said, okay, who can we hire? Who has related experience? Let's go and talk to some copywriters. So we talked to one and two and 50 and probably, I think it was 86 copywriters. And then we said, we can hire any of them and make them successful. So what are we doing wrong? Luckily, Guy has a background in social psychology. And he said, look, we're really looking for two skills. We're looking for people who, can, who know their way around words and people who know their way around numbers. So we're going to test for that. And he created an ad hoc assessment at the time, a simple test that took, I don't know, 15 minutes. We had maybe 500 people do it, talked to 20, interviewed 10, hired three. One of these persons, she's now a VP of operations at that company. So. What that helped me realize is that, A, we're making a ton of decisions in HR, and we have to be biased about them. We have to make them in a seat-of-the-pants approach. We can't do better. This was about looking back at the decision saying, what did I do wrong? There was nothing. I was processing all the data I had. It just wasn't enough. And that's one thing. And then experience doesn't matter as much as we think. There's actually research. and. Let me ask this question to you. What do you think is the correlation between job experience and job performance? It's a good question. In my experience, and I'm biased, but very little, like very, very little. You'd be right. So if uh, statistically speaking, the correlation is, you know, a perfect correlation is one. You never get that. The job experience has 0.13 correlation. 
with your future job performance, which is really it's the lowest metric. Even reference checks are better than that. They're twice as good. They're 0.26. So once you realize that, you're saying, hey, people are my most important resource. And this is what I realized through my personal quest. Whenever I've been in a company that I said, this is a great place, it wasn't because they had cool products or because they were had cool buildings. It was because it had people that I considered cool. So people are obviously the best resource. Why are we doing such a poor job with them? In hiring them, in growing them, in retaining them. This is the origin story, really. And that's the thing, right? So we typically transition from this into the origin story and what you're doing now at Brick, right? And, and you've kind of given us a really great segue there. I think I, I want to pause and, and touch on a couple of things, though. So everything you just said really resonated with me, right? Like absolutely hit the nail on the head. I guess we can't say those things without flagging that they're probably quite controversial, though, right? You're saying that experience has 0.13 correlation with job performance. I, it very, it, sort of makes very little difference. But if we look at how the most of the world recruits, you know, we speak to people all day about how they recruit. Most of the people we're speaking to are looking at CVs, they're looking at answers to questions, they're looking at LinkedIn profiles and looking at what that person did before and using that as the main assessment on how they're going to do in the job that they're looking to hire for, right? You're saying that that has absolutely, well, very, very minimal correlation with actual performance. And I get why you think that and why you're now building tools in support of that. But like, do you think people understand the degree to which there is such little correlation there? That's a, a great point you're making. And I always like to, like to fall back to a quote from William Gibson, just because I, I love his writing. And William Gibson has been saying that the future is here. It's just not widely distributed yet. Yeah, unevenly distributed, yeah. So here's what's happening. There is a common sense in what most people do. And most people will do whatever... We as an industry, we as pioneers are, are helping them get their hands on, right? The science has been there forever, but the science is there for so many things. It takes a long while until we get that even distribution. So we know that job experience doesn't work. There is undisputed evidence about that. And there's a ton and ton of research. And even if you ask most HR people who have some formal training, they're going to tell you, it's not, but what are my alternatives? It's better than hiring people randomly. Sure, I'll give you that. And that's the challenge. This is what, as an industry and as um, you know, drivers in the industry, we are called upon to do. How can we evenly distribute those, those new chances? How can we create an equitable process for everyone that the participants get, that they feel they're being treated fairly, that the practitioners, people who are driving this process, can actually also master because these are complex things. This is not, oh, this is so simple, even a child can do it. No, they can't. And we've been working on this for ages and we still see we go and improve every day. We close loops. We constantly reinforce our learning and we improve our systems. And we constantly try to make things simpler because big science is great when you can use it, when you don't have to ask how it works, but that you rely on it working correctly. And one of the challenges with science is that you have a lot of systems that look like they're working, but they're not. So how do I expect my average HR practitioner to tell which one is which? Well, HR people already have too many things to do anyway, right? They're already too spreadly thin. There's not enough specialism in those teams, in my opinion. And I think, again, everything you say makes a lot of sense. And I love the way you're kind of deconstructing all of this. I think one question that always interests me, right, is... You have a lot of experience. You've talked about the different roles you've had. You talk about marketing and sales and product and engineering and so on. You're now running an HR tech business. 
you aren't actually an HR practitioner, true and true, right? You don't have a lot of pre-vetted, pre-built experience in that space. How do you think that's impacting the way that you're kind of taking the helm of this? Like, I, I sort of feel like I'm in the same boat, right? Like, I have some experience, not as much as you, but I don't have any experience as a HR person. And I think that's a useful tool when we're building HR software because we lack some of the preconceived notions and challenges that lots of people that play in the space already have to contend with. How do you kind of think about that? I align a lot with your view. Let me start by saying that I did my MBA at the University of Washington. Very fine institution. I greatly enjoyed it. I had my biggest disagreement with our HR teacher. And she was actually great. She made a lot of points, but when someone teaches you HR, they're telling you how HR is done. And when you come from the outside, when you come from an engineering background, you're asking the non-obvious question. Why? Why is this? Why does this make sense? Why should we do it this way? But we've always done it, and these things don't work for an engineer. So I think that it's, you see a lot of the successful HR companies, they all come in the question of the status quo. A lot of them go the really own paths, but what we really believe is in, not so much in revolution. This is not a, a thing that's really broken. It's about how can we help people make the next step? How can we take them hand in hand? How can we use all the other scientific methods, bring them into HR and give them access? How can we take HR's own science, IO psychology? We have a bunch of IO psychologists on staff and we keep uh, recruiting more. We had advisors and there's so much science in what we do. Why? Because it's a freakishly complicated field. We love what they do, but I won't tell you that it's simple. And I don't expect my customers to know that either. I cannot expect my customer to employ, I don't know, one, even one I.O. They don't. So our work is, can we take science and make it accessible? Can we democratize these processes so that they, the intern, can be more successful? Not necessarily very easy, but this is what we're good at. And this is why it's an advantage to not come from the, from the space, right? Because, oh, we use a lot of HR advisors and some of our board advisors who come from the HR field they can tell us when we stop making sense. It happens, right? Sometimes you're, you want to over-engineer everything and make everything work like clockwork. This doesn't happen in HR. But like you say, I think it's just about taking it back to first principles and asking the right questions and really challenging things and then kind of postulating good options to, to, to rectify some of those kind of known truths that aren't actually truths in, this, in today's world. I think... Again, I also just love the way that you talk about like what I would call principles-based software, but like the idea that you, you don't need your clients to have psychologists in-house and all of that experience because they're getting that delivered through the mechanism of your product and your tool. I think we think about things in much the same way, right? We try and streamline recruitment processes because we feel like people get that stuff wrong. And what they're good at is the act of recruiting or meeting with folks or selling them on the, the brand identity or the vision of their business or product, but not so good at some of the bits on the periphery. And sort of that's why products exist to solve some of those problems. And if you can kind of democratize access to that, that's very, very useful. I think talking about that, though, you talk a lot about data, you talk a lot, a lot about science, you come at it from a very engineering perspective, which, which really resonates. But as you said, the conventional HR person has a thousand things to be dealing with. They're constantly pulled in different directions. People are inherently unpredictable. How do you think about like layering data into that conversation, right? You've obviously got a huge amount of data to work with. You've got huge amounts of data generated from the assessments that your product delivers and so on. But there's inherent complexity there. How do you kind of translate all of that into your clients and make that stuff actionable? It's not easy. I'll tell you this much. Yeah, I can imagine. And 
before we started uh, creating Brick, we said, surely we're not the first to come up with this problem. There must be solutions out there. And we went and reviewed the number of solutions. By the way, some of them were really nice. But what we found were solutions that were too specialized. They required too much time from the candidate. We had we saw assessments that were taking hours. And then you would get back a 50-page report. As a reviewer, I had a hard time reading that report. And I had one. What if I get 10 reports? And I'm a hiring manager, not even a recruiter, whose main job, you might argue, is to read these reports. What I'm trying to say is that big data is not about having a lot of data points. Big data is about how can I look at all the data points, use all the AI I need, do whatever that needs to be done, and then come back to you with insights that are actionable. You don't need to know if I looked at 100 or 1,000 or the correlation or the coefficient or whatever. This is simply not relevant. What you need to know is, here's a candidate. Here are 100 candidates. Here's how they fit your profile. This is the most likely person to be successful. Talk to them. And by the way, when you look at someone who's successful, be always aware that no one's perfect. So here are the areas where they might be likely to fail. And why do we highlight areas that are of concern? You cannot remove the human factor from these discussions. We cannot have a machine that's going to make the call because at the end of the day, someone needs to work with someone. And that, these are, you know, ineffable qualities that we cannot capture in any system. It will always have to go through people. But if we arm people with the right information, if we tell them, here's Tom, and, you know, you should talk to Tom, he's a perfectionist. He's really a perfectionist, though, and that might be a hindrance in what you expect him to do in day-to-day business. You'll have to make a call and figure out if that's, that could be an advantage for other positions, if you can live with that. This is how we think science empowering people. It's not about overloading them with, here are a thousand data points, but it's like, here's Markellos, here are three things that you should look out for him. Markellos comes after two years and he's starting to be bored with his position. Here's the person. Here are five occupations that might be a good match for him or her. Start thinking about it. And he chooses to become, I don't know, he wants to become um, an account executive. Fine. Here are the areas where you need to develop this person. Don't give me all the information. Give me the information that I need. Answer questions that are actionable, not very generic. Markellos is a type so-and-so. So what? Who cares? What are the other types? There are a billion types out there. But that's like, like you say, that, and, and that's where it becomes talent intelligence and not just an assessment or a recruitment tool, right? And I think that's the bit that's, that's super interesting. I think the other thing that I often contend with when we talk to people about this stuff is bluntly this sort of shit in, shit out concept, right? And like we talk a lot about data and process and tooling and things like that. But we've come across lots of people where they'll ask their hiring managers what they need from a hire or what skills they're looking for or what traits they're looking for in a successful X, whatever that role might be. And the reality is that the hiring manager or the hiring team don't really know what they're looking for or or worse, they are looking for the wrong thing, right? Because they're looking at the wrong set of data or they're trying to reinforce historic approaches to things. How do you think about educating your clients and, and others that you speak to about how to actually understand what they want before they start the process in Vigor? In our early days, we didn't have an AI component. And the reason why we didn't have an AI component was that we were afraid that applying AI would end up introducing bias, bias that we couldn't control. And while we were thinking about this, we started with a you know, very common approach, which is here's a list of, I don't know, 700 occupations. Go find what you're looking for and you'll find a profile. And 
we saw customers use that, and it didn't work as great as we liked. You know, we always close the loop, we measure success, and we didn't love the results. So we went back and looked at what they were asking and had some interviews with our customers, and then we realized that they were asking for a product manager, but they were really looking for a consultant. They were asking for an account executive, and they were looking sometimes for a farmer, sometimes for a hunter. Completely different profiles. And then we said, okay, clearly, it's unreasonable to expect from anyone to understand 100 different roles. An HR practitioner cannot do it. And the hiring manager, A, doesn't have that much interest or time. And B, they have a very biased view about what it is. If you ask me what a great CEO looks like, I'm going to describe myself. And that's a problem. Am I the best? <laughs> Arguably, you can have a discussion about that. But there are many different paths to success, right? So some of the traits that I have have zero correlation with being great at what you do. And this is when we actually invested a lot of effort into creating an AI, but we wanted to do a different AI. Usually when you do AI, you say, okay, here's a bunch of data of what I have today. Give me more of that. The problem is that the situation that you have today is a biased one. You've been hiring with your practices. So if I take all your previous hires and analyze them, I'm going to give you more of the same. And we've seen people fail that way. Amazon is one very well-known case, very well intended, where they started, you know, um, I think they created an AI on resumes. And what it ended up is that they created an AI that was discriminatory and would hire male people from specific schools. Why? Because this is the data that they fed it with. So removing the bytes from the equation is hard. And what we try to create is instead of creating an AI based on pure data, is to... I know my team hates this, to create a psychologist in a box. So what a psychologist in a box is, is it's an AI. It's not a real person in a box. It's not like the mechanical Turk. What it is, is that we, we got this AI and we told her, her, is it a female? Who knows? We told it, maybe. Here are a bunch of people. Here are a bunch of job descriptions. And here are the things that make people successful in these jobs. Can you learn the correlation between the two? So now our AI, when you give it a job description, it goes back, it looks at all the theories that it knows from IO psychology and says, here are the traits that are going to make this person successful. And that's based on theories that are established, like the Holland codes, you know, 16PF, combinations of those. Is it perfect? No, but we feel that we're getting to that 90 plus percent match where we're finding the things that are important. And you can literally see, because you throw in a text and then you see what comes out and you're saying, Oh, yeah. Why did that come out? Let me go back to my job description and understand what it is that I'm asking that makes uh, the system think that I need someone who's assertive. But just having that sanity check mechanism is super useful, right? And I think, as I say, look, we all understand that these things are never perfect. But frankly, if you feel like you're 90% there, that's a damn sight better than the vast majority of hiring managers in terms of their experience framing what it is they're looking for and sort of being challenged around that. That, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think before we touch on assessment specifically and dig into a bit more of the granular detail, I guess I just wanted to step back a second because I think it's interesting, right? Like you have a fairly technical background and you've worked in a variety of different industries in different places. All and Again, you were doing VR when Deutschmarks were a thing. So like we understand that you have this context and this background. Why do you think HR is sort of still playing catch up today, right? Like we've gone through this transition with finance and sales and marketing and you know every other facet of the business world that we we operate in where 
these conversations were being had quite some time ago and the software stack and the technology and the methodology and the process and the way that they thought about making decisions and so on has sort of, as you said, wasn't necessarily a revolution at any one point in time, but this natural, consistent, iterative evolution. Why do you think that, because to me, HR feels like a bit of a laggard in that arena. Why do you think that's the case today? Well, I think that things have changed, if not today, yesterday. So in the very recent past. And it takes... um, a perfect alignment of the stars for things to take off, right? You know that the internet was there for 20 years and then all of a sudden, within a few years, it took off. I was actually on the internet back in 1986 when I had to go to the university and borrow someone's computer and I was doing non-interactive FTP where I'd send an email and I'd say, show me the files and then next day I'd get an email with the files. This is not what would make it successful. In the case of HR, we've had the science for a while And technology wasn't quite up to snuff. When you start dealing with this big data, because you have to have a lot of data, you have to have the ability to process. AI seems to be the one thing that's starting to make HR tools really useful, provided that it's good AI. And, you know, like all known technologies, this is a completely different discussion. What's good? What's bad AI? How can we tell? But we needed all this to be. We needed the science. We needed the technology. And we had everything but it wasn't a sexy topic. And this is why people weren't investing. And as bad as this may sound, luckily, we had the pandemic for this one reason. Nothing was good about the pandemic. But the pandemic actually helped in a way that was very unexpected for us. It helped people realize that people are important. HR has been in the back of their mind for too long. And HR is really the unsung hero of this pandemic, right? It was these people who were always, you know, ah, you know, HR, they do their thing. They actually rose up to the occasion. They're the ones who helped us survive. And all of a sudden, we looked at them and said, oh, these are real heroes. How can we help them? Give them some money. What kind of tools do they have? And all of a sudden, we looked back and we realized that there are not good, great tools. There were not things that we could get for them to make their lives easier. And the process that they were broken, it was not because of the people. People were doing the best they could. But it was because it was the best option they had. So you've probably seen it. There has been a a ton of investment in the past two years in the HR space. Not enough is what I'm going to say. We're still lagging. And what we're going to say is a wave of innovation. It's coming. It started. Companies like Pinpoint, companies like Brick, they're coming in. They're saying, there is a better way. We can help you. You don't have to to carry all the burden. HR are not people who should be screening CV. This is not what they're paid for. They have been providing a ton of value and they've shown that they're way more than that. Now let's give them the tools so that they can focus on what they're actually doing. It's kind of like thinking we're doing accounting on paper, right? This is where we are today in HR. Literally, yeah, that's why I asked the question. It's ludicrous. But look, I completely agree with you. And I think the cavalry are coming, right? We're seeing HR budgets increase. We're seeing people look at HR and people and recruiting as a competitive advantage and not just an overhead today. And that transcends lots of things. And I think, yeah, you're right. We can't say that COVID has been a a great thing, but I think it has shone light on some areas that have historically been ignored. And I think that's nothing but a good thing long, long term. It'll be interesting to see how that kind of pans out. I think when it comes to assessment specifically, how do you think about that through the lens of candidate experience, right? Because, you know, we talk about COVID, we talk about this transition and this sort of broad shift of power from company to candidate and how the candidate really wields all the cards and the power in today's dynamic. 
whenever we talk about anything in the HR landscape or the recruitment landscape, we always shine this lens of candidate experience on top of that and say, well, what does it mean for the candidate? What kind of experience are we offering them? There's lots of things we want to put candidates through because they're helpful for us as people on the recruiting side of the table, but not necessarily offering a good balance, right? Lots of organizations are doing assessments. Is there sort of a playbook? Is there best practice? What are the sort of do's and don'ts of doing assessments right from a candidate's perspective? We spent a lot of effort thinking about that and a lot of failed experiments. But hey, oh, we all live and learn. Well, that's why we do them, right? Totally. And we always believe that we can only become better if we measure the outcome of what we do. At the end of an um, assessment, we always give uh, candidates the opportunity to take a short survey that asks three simple things. Are you satisfied with the experience? Did you find it engaging? Was it difficult? And over time, I've been looking now at the past two years of data. We've actually managed to get to the assessment uh, to the point where people are saying, look, this assessment was neither too difficult nor too easy. This is what we want them to think. It's a fair measure of ability. Not everybody's going to shine, but they get it and they feel that they're being treated equally. And overwhelmingly, we get over 90% of the candidates to say that this was an engaging experience and I'm satisfied with it. Though I'm not sure what satisfaction means when you're being assessed. There are two elements to dealing with um, candidates. And by the way, we don't think about candidates, we think about as people. Because sometimes it's going to be candidates, sometimes it's going to be employees, it's going to be vendors, it's going to be whoever, contingent stuff, doesn't matter. And the way we think about it is, A, how do we make their experience great? And B, how do we make it useful for them? At the end of the day, from the get-go, we try to explain to them that this is a two-way process. This is about making you successful. This is not about, oh, let's find the best, the brightest. This is not what we're looking for. We're looking to find the people who we can make successful in the long run. And this is why companies are adapting us. Because they want to say, hey, I have an equal opportunity process and I care about my employees. And caring means that I want to make sure that I'm going to bring in people who can do the job, people who are going to enjoy doing the job, and people who are going to come and complement who I am as a company. This has always been gaining attention from customers. And this was actually also driven in our case by, by our customer request. There was a customer who said, look, I love what you're doing. I want to understand though how these people fit into my culture. And by fit, we're not looking to copycat and say, everybody who comes here must be you know, over six feet. And this is not culture and that's not fit. But it's more about, here are the five things I care. No one's going to be perfect in all of them. But sometimes I'm going to hire and... Let's say that one of my uh, cultural pillars is, I don't know, innovation. Sometimes I'm going to have to drive to hire a person who's more of an innovator, all other things being equal, because this is where I'm hurting as a team. Once you realize that and you start thinking about, look, I'm now no longer hiring for people, I'm hiring for teams. Have you ever watched this movie, Moneyball? No, I haven't, actually. It's a very interesting movie with um, Brad Pitt and baseball not being very popular outside of the US. Not many people have. What the story says in Moneyball, and I'll give you the very short version, is that Brad Pitt, who was playing someone else, so it wasn't Brad Pitt, the coach of the Oakland A's, he goes and he has little budget. And he says, look, I cannot hire any of the big names or the star players. And then there's this guy who comes in and, poor guys, he, I'm now going to call him Jonah Hill because that's, that's who was playing the guy. But it was some other important person. So that other, not Jonah Hill guy, he comes in and says, look, you're hiring the wrong way. Don't think about hiring people who are superstars themselves. You create a superstar team 
by finding people who complement themselves. So you need um, pictures and you need butters and you need this and you need that. And at the end of the day, you want you don't need people who are gonna score 0.9 in whatever. You need a lot of people who are gonna be 0.6, and then they're gonna build on each other. Starting to build teams that are more than the sum of their parts, that's actually the secret to success. Whenever I've seen a great team, whenever I've worked in a great company, it was not because it was driven by a superstar personality. I've seen that a lot of times and it always go wrong. No, it was driven by a lot of people who each contributed their own part and all together they created something great. So this is what he did with the Oakland A's. He hired a lot of people who everybody else thought they're just mid-players. Together they created something great. Now, if you can take this analogy and put it into your business, this is how you can win in this, I don't know, is it modern warfare what we have now? The war on talent? What are you going to call it? It's, it's a very dire situation. We're going to come back to the war on talent in a minute because I think we both have some interesting views on that. I, I think I want to circle back to and, and sort of close the loop in your, in your words on Moneyball, right? Because I haven't watched the film, but I'm glad you talked about it because I read the book and Michael Lewis is the best author on the planet and love everything that he writes. If we talk about Moneyball, Love it. I'm a geek. I'm an engineering type person. I love the data. I love the way that he thought about putting that team together and it kind of being the whole kind of greater than the sum of its parts, wisdom of the crowds type thing, right? What I will say is that a lot of the book talks about how much friction and hassle and criticism he sort of swallowed whilst they went through that process, right? It wasn't smooth sailing, changing the way that they thought about that team dynamic and building that team and going away from individualized superstar contributors to a sort of team dynamic statistical approach. How do you think about, you know, using your metaphorical sort of analogy and like taking that into the world of business? How do you think about giving people who want to go through that transition, like the ammunition and the tools to convince their organization to sort of bide with them whilst they go through that process, right? Like a lot of this is about internal sales and saying, I've got a view, let me go do this. And if you're the CEO, fair enough. But if you're a recruiter or a HR manager or whatever, how do you educate the rest of the business as you go through this journey? It's not as hard, actually. We find a lot of people who have the mindset and they're saying, I need to win, really. That's what it all comes down. And we see a lot of HR people who are way more forward-thinking than we thought. I won't lie, I was coming into this field and I said, look, this is a lot of people who are backward-thinking and they're going to be stuck to their ways. No, I came and found a ton of people who are actually innovators, who care for the good of their teams, and who are going to go way above and beyond to make sure that everybody's happy. So these are the people who are easy to talk to. And then you say, look, here's, here's the premise. Here's what is good. Here's the science. And that's great because there's science behind this. This is not because, oh, you know, our AI came up with this. No, this is because we have this many years of research. And the research actually stipulates that that's the way to go. And then on top of the science, here are the case studies, which is great. And very often, we're going to run with the customers one or two benchmarking studies. And what a benchmarking study is, an application of all the science in your very own environment. You know, a customer is going to come and say, look, I have these 20 account executives. Show me that there's correlation between what you do and their actual sales performance. And that's easy. That's a study we can do in a couple of weeks. And then we can show you, here's the correlation. Here's what makes your salespeople tick. And we found that by optimizing the profile, we actually have the ability to predict sales success 90% of the time. Anybody who's a CRO, whenever they hear, oh, so nine out of 10 AEs I'm going to hire are going to be great, their eyes light up because they know what that means to them. And at the same time, this is great for the AEs. 
how many A's have gone and went into a company where they didn't fit, they didn't like the product, the company, whatever. And they had the two very hard quarters before they moved out. Avoiding that, that's a net gain for everyone. And that's how you build a win-win situation. I'm glad you talked about this through the lens of both sides, right? Because again, we always want to make sure we're making the right recruiting decisions for our own benefit. But we think it's super important for candidates as well, right? And I think a big part of our own recruitment process is trying to educate candidates about the pros and cons of our business, about the role, about the challenges, about who the thing is right for, who it's not right for, learning from our own experience. Because we don't want to waste anybody's time any more than than they want to waste ours, right? And it's a, a, a massively important part of that kind of two-way recruiting dialogue that I think is often missed. Everybody just tries to sort of paint a picture of their organization through these very rose-tinted glasses, and they just end up with misaligned people expecting different things than reality, and nobody really wins in that situation. Here's an interesting question for you. You read the book. Man, I'm always ashamed when someone says, oh, I didn't see the movie, but I read the book. <laughs> a proper geek, yeah. How many people do you think are using um, this method? By the way, the Moneyball approach, which was called Sabermetrics, today. Almost nobody would be my analysis. And you'd be wrong. Ten years after the Oakland A um, event, 70% of Major League Baseball was using Sabermetrics. So what I'm trying to emphasize here is that there's no doubt that it works. And this has been proven in the field again. So now what's happening for companies is that this becomes an inevitability. You are going to have to go down that path. If you want to survive and thrive, you can no longer rely on approaches that were substandard. They were fine yesterday. They're substandard today. There is a better way. You know, you get people, you get Josh Berson coming out and saying, you can no longer expect to hire for experience. You have to hire for skill. You have to hire for fit. And what does fit mean? It's all these things that we describe. So once you realize that it's inevitable, it creates this huge industry that we need to fill the demand, right? We have an active demand. People are seeing the need and people are getting it that it's going to be going that way. The question is not if now, it's when. So helping them along, making this transition easy, making the journey better, that's what we're all about. Again, it just really resonates. I think interesting, obviously, with the Moneyball analogy, I wonder if it's just about information asymmetry, right? So like with Moneyball, there's a small number of teams, the transition that they went through with the Sabermetrics approach is very public. They can see the impact that that's made and it kind of has this knock-on impact and everybody kind of feels like they're FOMO unless they're actually doing that and they change the way they're working. In the real world, in the world of business, in the folks that we speak to day-to-day running recruitment processes and growing their teams, We already see examples of people doing this sort of thing, data-driven recruitment, using tools like yours, actually thinking about this properly, using data where they need to, and and so on. I think a lot of what we spend our time doing is just, as you said at the beginning, right, the future is already here, it's just unevenly distributed. Like I, I think we spend a lot of time just trying to shine a light on people doing things well, whether that's in a case study or whether that's productizing a process that we've seen somebody deploy with great success. And all we're really doing is, Obviously, occasionally we think we do some clever stuff, but actually really the majority of the job that we do is just about shining light on what good looks like and making it really easy to adopt that and translate that into your own process and and best practice. And so I think it just seems that people aren't aware that others actually do recruit in this way that is super productive. And our job collectively is to show them what that actually means. You're totally right. Information takes a long while, right? What we're doing now is going to be in university courses five, 10 years from now. And then 15 years later, it's going to be in the market. So from now till plus 15 years, when this is going to become the de facto standard, 
this is the gap we need to bridge. But this is the opportunity to differentiate, right? And that's the thing. And I think, you know, if we use that as a segue into this kind of broader war for talent conversation, I think we're seeing this interesting dynamic, right? Everything's becoming globalized. You're seeing international companies become international when they're five people, not when they're 5,000. You're seeing people recruit all over the world. You're seeing salaries sort of standardization, massive inflation in markets, having a knock-on impact in markets that aren't seeing that same inflation. Like the whole world's gone crazy from a recruitment perspective. And I think it's really interesting because, again, we speak to lots of people who I feel like have these very sort of shutter vision glasses on where what they do is they look at this information and they go, well, this is fantastic because we can recruit more people in different markets and pay less. And what they don't realize is that the people who already work for them can go get better jobs being paid more without having to leave. And this sort of, again, the need to compete and the need to step up the game, I think, hasn't been felt as much as it is today ever in the context of recruitment and HR. And just sort of interested in your views on how the world and how organizations should be adapting to this new world we all live in. I'm still trying to figure this out. I'll tell you some of my current thoughts, but I was having just this discussion with my uh, SVP of operations today. And we were talking about how should we change our compensation? I hire a person who we are remote team first and we have people in uh, Greece, in the UK, Canada, the US and anywhere else in the world. We don't really care. Do I pay them the same? Do I pay people in the U.S. Um, more than I pay people in the Philippines? And if so, by how much? At what point does this become a question of market prices? And where does it become an opportunity cost? Because if I get a great person who's in the Philippines and he's giving me the equivalent of $100,000 worth of work, why not pay them that? And why wait for the competition to nab them? I don't have all the answers. What we're seeing, though, is... I'll give us a short example. We went to hire a content writer. We're big, sure, we're going to be one of the biggest HR tech companies in the near future, but we're not quite there yet, and we're not a household name as of yesterday. So how many people do you think applied for our position? Was it a remote position? It was a remote position, yes. A thousand? 2,400 people applied. So you can see how... All of a sudden, we're talking about the war of talent, and then you're saying, oh, there's a dearth of talent. Yet I have 2,400 applicants for a position. But then, who do you hire? Either you start setting arbitrary criteria. Let's hire only people who are in the U.S. Why? Does it matter? No. Or you start saying, okay, let me look at objective criteria. Let me go through these people and see what, what would make a content writer tick. And from the 2,400, I want to talk to 10 people who are the most likely to be successful. I'm always going to miss on a talent that's on position 500, right? Because he or she is very special. But if I can get it more often right than wrong, this is such a huge benefit. If I can find the best person out of 2,400, talk to five, look at the interview two, three, hire someone who works great, this completely changes the game on its head, right? I no longer have a shortage on talent. I have to think about how to expand my horizon. How, you know, how you were saying there are no good, I don't know, developers or product managers or whatever in location X, in Florida, in, in the Valley anymore or wherever. For people in Florida, I did not say there are no good developers in Florida. <laughs> but yeah, carry on, Marcellos. <laughs> yes, I stand corrected. There are excellent developers in Florida, but only there. <laughs> so there are no, no good developers anywhere but Florida. Yeah, of course. The point being that we have to stop thinking about talent the traditional way. 
And we have to think about talent non-linearly. One of the things that the Great Resignation now teaches us is that people have been pushed linearly to do things. Why? Because they've studied something and they no longer want to do this. After a long while, they want to go back into their calling, whatever their calling might be. I have a close friend who's a, who was a colleague for, with me for 15 years. We're doing mobile marketing all around the world. And uh, it was always an interesting case because he studied medicine. And after some point, he ended up with a telco, telco, an operator, and he said, fine, I love this, lots more money than medicine, and I don't have to do you know, an internship. So he was at it for 15 years, and he was very good at it. And after the, the lockdown, I talked to him just last week, and he said, you know what? He's now about 45. I'm going to go back to becoming a doctor. I'm now at 45, going to start my internship for the next five years. Why? Because that's what I want to do. This is definitely not what most systems are going to tell you. Oh, this person, look at them. They've done 15 years of mobile marketing. They can now become a gynecologist. No. But this is what career progression looks like now. It's about what people want to do. It's about what fits right for them. It's about finding a cultural fit. And this is why a lot of the systems that are out there that are based solely on skills and the past fail to look at the people. They look at what people do, not at what people are. And we think that's going to be increasingly more important. If you want to have a workforce that's fulfilled, that's what you can expect from work, right? It's not about happiness. It's about doing something that's good, something that aligns with who you are, and then making every day just the world a little bit better. And then you need something that's based around the people themselves, not what they've been doing for the past 10 years, not what they did during the pandemic. Super, super, super clear advice. And I think... We need to wrap up in a second because I've taken up so much of your time. I think I just want to make one final point, kind of concluding everything you've said, because there's been so many kind of points and takeaways and everything. I think I was speaking to somebody else, super, super smart guy recently. He runs a, an agency business in the US. It's a very large company. But like the point that you made, Marcus, about Brick and your sort of a challenger brand, right? Not as well known yet, and you will be in the future, but sort of your employer brand isn't up there with Fang and Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Google, et cetera, today. Not yet. And what he was saying is his whole view has basically been not to even try and play in markets in which Facebook and Apple and Netflix and Google operate because the compensation that they're prepared to offer is just uneconomical. He couldn't possibly compete with that. It's never going to work. If he tries to recruit A players that want to go to Fang, he's going to lose. So his approach has been try to operate in markets where Fang don't operate. So historically, that might have been second tier cities in the US, right? He'd go to Austin and not the, the Valley or whatever, right? And now that doesn't exist. So now he's going to Serbia and Portugal and Poland and places that have incredible people that but maybe where Facebook aren't looking quite so aggressively, right? And so he's sort of being pushed out of these main markets into increasingly more tertiary markets. And he's finding incredible people but his recruitment strategy has basically been go find incredible people that the other players wouldn't look for historically. The reality is that that's a dying game, right? Because they're always going to get there eventually. And the, what the, whole, the reality is that the market's sort of leveled now. I think what's super exciting about all the things that you're saying is it takes a long time to steer a ship of that size and scale differently and to change the way that you think about recruiting when you're Facebook and Apple and Netflix and Google and so on. Because you get a bit big, you get a bit lazy, you fall back on a very strong employer brand. I think what's interesting is that instead of looking for a different pool of people in a different physical geo, you should instead be thinking about how do I assess those people differently and how do I take that 2,400 applicants that Mark Ellis had 
and assess them in a way that gives me a different outcome and gives me a set of people that wouldn't historically be viewed as positively as people that are also competing for that talent do. And I think that's what's super exciting, right, is being able to look at the same labor pool, the same pool of potential employees and see the same outcome effectively, but just with a different set of people. And that's where this kind of whole assessment game and the stuff that you're doing at Brick is super, super exciting for me. And so I'd really encourage you all to go check out Brick. It's B-R-Y-Q.com. And speak to Mark Ellos. You can find him on LinkedIn. There'll be links and everything in the show notes. But like, please go check out their product. Like, This is not a sales pitch for Brick. And we've had Marcus, Mark Ellos here because he's got some great insights. But again, like we, we think highly of what they do. So please go check that out. And Mark Ellis just leaves me to say thank you so much for your time. It's been great to have you here and great to chat. It was a great discussion and I wish we could solve all problems in an hour. But this is not something that's going to end. And what we're going to see different than the past is evolution. We haven't seen that much evolution in HR for ages. And now every year that comes by, we see more change than we ever anticipated. This is not to scare people. No, this is good change. These are things that are improvements. And uh, it's great to be talking with companies like Pinpoint, like Brick. We're not the only vendors. There are a bunch of great people out there. Help them figure out which are the ones that can drive your strategy. There are so many layers of uh, pools that are untapped. And (laughs) the box has been removed. It's no longer about thinking about the box. We all used to live in these little boxes. They're all completely gone. So adjusting to the new reality and making the most out of it. It's going to be a challenge, but I think it's going to be a great one. And over time, it's going to totally change the face of work. But it's going to be better. And it's an opportunity, right? It's an opportunity for people who aren't winning that talent war at the moment to address that and actually stand a chance of doing very well. And it's we've seen it be massively transformative to our ability to find top people. And I'm sure you have too. First mover advantage. That's it. But yeah, everybody, thank you so much for listening. Mark Ellos, thank you for your time. If you're interested in more insights from people like Mark Ellos, please stay tuned to The Talent Revolution. We've got new episodes and best practice guidance coming every other Tuesday. Go ahead and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening. Thank you for having me.